Okay, we're going to be spending some time there in Genesis 2 and also in chapter 3, so if you'd uh, open your Bible or navigate there, please. Just the beginning of the Bible, chapters 2 and 3. Tie of our message this morning, this lamb is your lamb, this lamb is my lamb, this lamb is slain for you and me. Father, thank you so much for uh, just giving us your word. It is a joy, Lord, to have in our midst and uh, hopefully in our hearts. Pray for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher today, Lord. You promised that you would send him to teach and also come alongside to comfort and uh, bless in so many ways. We want to understand some things that we haven't understood before, but mostly we want to draw close to you, Lord. We want to see you in your glory, high and lifted up, ready and poised to come back, take us home to be with you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. amen. If you are my age or a fan of classic television, you can finish this lyric. A horse is a horse, unless the horse is a talking horse. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. All right, good for you. Anybody not know what we're talking about? Raise your hand. No, that's all right. The first talking animal I can remember was Cecil, the C6 sea serpent. Anybody remember Beanie and Cecil? Yeah. Yeah, classic television. Crowey, Captain Horatio Huffinpuff, and Dick Dastardly rounded out the cast. Beanie wore a multicolored beanie that had a propeller on it allowing him to fly. It was marketed by Mattel as a toy called the Beanie Copter. It wound up so that you could launch a propeller from your head. I'd wear mine while watching. It was early cosplay. Uh, just... <laughs> We invented that watching Beanie and Cecil. Who is your first or favorite talking animal? You know, because we're bombarded by talking animals on film, on television, in literature, on stage, in video games, everywhere. It makes you wonder if animals could talk to humans in the past. Well, there is, of course, a talking animal in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible. Well, that's a unique situation, a one-off, you might say. What if I reminded you that there is another talking animal in the Bible? It's a donkey who Ubered for Balaam, a sleazy Old Testament prophet for hire. On his way to curse God's people for money, an angel blocked the way intending to kill Balaam. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, so Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam's eyes were opened and his life was saved. Perhaps he ought to have taken a moment to reflect that a donkey had more spiritual sense than he did, uh, but he went on with his mission anyway. There's a hint that animals spoke prior to the serpent's conversation with Eve. Before God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, he told the animals to be fruitful and multiply that's in chapter 1, verse 22. The Bible gives no indication that they answered back, but why speak aloud to them if they could not comprehend language? You talk to your pets, right? Do you, do you wonder if they comprehend something? Oh, yeah, my dog's really smart. No, he's just hungry. He's, he, he knows where the food is. But, and cats, you know, I, I, was, I was down on cats my whole life. Now, I love cats now, you know, because I got these two great cats, but they're, they're not as independent as people said. They're totally habitual. 
They're the most habitual animals in the world. If I could tell you our routine, it would blow your mind uh, and stuff. But, uh, you know, so you, you talk to animals as if they can. But, you know, I think God has given these animals a command. And it isn't, they're not hearing it like, you know, like Charlie Brown's parents or something like that. Uh, I mean, they, they understood God's command. Animals played a role in the relationship between Adam and Eve. Genesis 2.18 and following, And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Naming the animals was important, but it was secondary. The point of bringing beasts and birds to Adam was to demonstrate that he had no complement. He had no counterpart. God must therefore have brought couples, male and female, two by two. There's a satanic conspiracy against God's natural order for marriage and the family. Our leaders, elected and appointed, are pushing things like gender identity upon our children. It's a strong play in order to control the next generation. As he always does, God will raise up apologists to give us reasonable arguments. Overall, I stick to the philosophy of Larry Norman, who once said, Don't ask me for the answers. I've only got one. A man leaves his darkness when he follows the sun. And it's a good reminder that we don't have to have all the answers because we have the answer. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, because we could talk about any problems that people have or are putting forth, any agenda that they have, and yet you and I know that they, if they're not believers, they're, they're in the dark. They're in a deep spiritual hole. And they think that what they're saying is reasonable or important, but it's, it's part of darkness. And what they need, what does somebody in the dark need? They need the light. They don't need an argument. They don't need to be proven wrong scientifically. They need the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, God will raise up apologists, as I said. They're, they're, uh, we're not an unreasonable people. The Christian faith is extremely reasonable. We're not afraid of going against things like evolution or other religions. Teach them all. Because you know what? Christianity is going to come out on top every time because we have a secret weapon, and that is Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He's alive forevermore. Amen? And so, uh, you know, they say that we're always talking about conspiracy theories. There is a satanic conspiracy. There has been since the fall of Satan. And he takes men and women captive. Uh, it doesn't mean he possesses them. He just takes them captive, and they do his will. And they're doing it in the dark. And so, yes, meet the problem head on. Go to the board meetings. Do everything that we need to do there. But realize that the person you're talking to needs to get saved. Ultimately, that is the answer. Uh, the, we fight not uh, you know, physical foes, but spiritual ones. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. You might recall Bob Dylan's musical take on this. Man gave names to all the animals. Remember that? I'm not going to sing it. You can't convince me to sing it unless you want to sing it with me. How many want to sing it with me? Anybody? No? Okay. So he gave names to all the animals in the beginning, long time ago. Next animal that he did meet had wool on its back and hooves on his feet. Eating grass on a mountainside so steep, oh, I think I'll call it a sheep. Now, it isn't far-fetched that Adam would additionally give them personal names. 
He did exactly that when God brought Eve to him. Adam identified her as woman when he, she was first created. I will call her woman. And then later on in chapter 3, he named her Eve. And so I think something like that happened with the animals too. Uh, we do that with, uh, we have all kinds of stray cats that hang out at our house. Now we're, we're that house. And, and we give the cats names. I don't know what they're real. One cat we just call random. Uh, you know, he's like random cat. If you remember in Megamind, anybody seen Megamind? At the beginning when uh, there, there's a big crowd and I love you. And he goes, I see you, random citizen. And uh, so this is random cat. And all the other cats we give names to. Uh, and and uh, maybe that's why they don't leave, but I don't know. Uh, and so I think Adam would have given them pet names as well. The original sheep couple may have been Sean and Lamb Chop. <laughs> the original human couple coexisted with animals. Adam and Eve were charter members of PETA. Fish were friends, not food. <laughs> Adam never shushed Eve and said, I'm hunting wascally wabbit. They did not kill, eat, or use any parts of animals. No animals were harmed in the garden, at least not at first. Things were going swell in the Garden of Eden. By the way, I think I'm going to start calling it the Garden of God. The prophet Ezekiel refers to Eden as the Garden of God no less than three times. It may not seem much different. It's the same place, but I think it puts a little bit different spin on what goes on there. Uh, I mean, sure, it's, it's the garden that's in Eden, but it was God's garden. And he would come and tend the garden in the uh, cool of the afternoon with Adam and Eve, and it, it just makes it sound all that much more hospitable. God gave Adam and Eve a single, simple statute, and it was full of grace. He said, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. They were fruitarians. I don't mean to ruin your Easter ham, but in heaven we will be fruitarians in the future because there's no death uh, in heaven. And so you can't be killing porky pig for bacon anymore, so maybe there will be a bacon tree, uh, right? Uh, there are currently more than 2,000 varieties of fruits. Did you know that? Probably. You took Fruit 101, right, in college. But 2,000 varieties of fruit. And a lot, there are many, many fruits over the years that have gone extinct. There's a couple of things that I can't pronounce that there's like only one tree left in the world. Crazy. wonder what that tastes like. Maybe key lime pie wouldn't win every year if we had some of that, right? Every year we have uh, our pie contest, and it's always a key lime pie. Everybody loves key lime pie, except you. But anyway, God supplied an overabundance of delicious food, more than enough for our parents to obey him without feeling deprived. I mean, it wasn't just that they had this tree or that tree to choose from, and they thought, well, I'm tired of eating over here. Why don't we? I mean, they had a garden full of trees tended by God, thousands of varieties of fruit, and they still went for the one. Enter the great dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Adam and Eve were together, but the recorded conversation was between the serpent and Eve. He encouraged her to disobey God. She disobeyed. Adam followed willingly. In two shakes of a lamb's tail, they learned that God meant something really terrible by you shall surely die. The presence and prevalence of evil in the world today causes mankind to question God. If he is omnipotent and loving, why so much suffering? It's a fair question. In fact, there's a branch of theology dedicated to answering it. 
It's called theodicy, dealing with the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 is a good beginning for any theodicy. According to the great apostle Paul, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people. Everything that is bad and evil springs from this initial disobedience of Adam called sin. Adam sinned, and that's how sin got in the world. Death came because of sin, and then it spread to all people. Very, very simple and sad. There was no death, no suffering, no pain, no sorrow until Adam ate the forbidden fruit. He personally invited death into the Garden of Eden. Don't blame God. He acted immediately to resolve sin at great personal cost. As we said many, many times over the years, the Bible is the blueprint of God's plan for dealing with the problem of sin that Adam and Eve created. And it's a, it's a marvelous plan. It's taking a lot longer than you and I would like. Uh, but it is a marvelous plan that is going to be uh, glorious in the future. God had warned Adam that disobedience would bring the death penalty. Adam died at 930 years young. His descendants are born dying. We are further described as being born dead in our trespasses and sins. Pastor Don McClure used to say, we are born physically alive, soulishly active, but spiritually dead. We are born lifeless toward God. We live as if he did not exist or as if his existence did not matter. We're not done describing the death penalty. It gets worse. There is something the Bible calls the second death. It is the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. It is what we commonly call hell. It is the place of punishment after physical death. Our parents invited physical, spiritual, and eternal death into the garden of God. What could be done to evict this most unwelcome guest? God sowed clothes for his naked prodigals. That's how God rose to the occasion. The account in Genesis makes it clear that being naked was a major problem. Before disobeying God, quote, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. After disobeying God, quote, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The problem was not that Eden had become a nudist colony overnight. It wasn't that they suddenly realized they were naked. It reads as if they lost something that had covered their nakedness. It is widely believed that Adam and Eve were originally clothed with light. Listen to this description. We are not to imagine that prior to the garments of skin made by God for Adam and Eve, they were utterly naked. On the contrary, their original garb consisted of light. In Hebrew, the words for light and skin are homonyms, both pronounced the same but spelled differently. Adam and Eve had their garments of celestial light replaced by garments of skin, which no longer illuminated. Another source said, Adam and Eve wore robes of light, reflecting the light of God's glory. But when they sinned, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Sin stripped them from connection with God. One more quote, there are traditions from both Jewish and Christian sources that teach that before the fall, the skin of Adam and Eve was luminous. In other words, they were covered by divine light and would glow, so to speak. I hope this triggers your mind to make some connections to Moses' face and to the Messiah. 
We often describe celebrities as what? Luminaries in their various fields. Its original meaning used to describe an object or celestial body as giving off light. Jesus was the light of the world, and we are now his lights in the world. We are God's luminaries. You hear this, all the luminaries of uh, stage and film are here tonight on the red carpet. You and I are, are luminaries, not to gain fame or to bring attention to ourselves, but to reveal the light of the world. The Bible says that God dwells in an impenetrable light. And so it's, uh, people don't like to talk about this very much because it's, it, some things that are in the Bible border on the strange in certain cultures, right? And I mean, we're, we're, uh, when we go through Genesis, we talk about the Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6, the race of giants and all that. And people are like, what are you talking about? And, and even though we prove that it's right there in the Bible, it's really a hard sell because it, it, it seems a little fantastic. And so a lot of people say, what do you mean they were clothed with light? They gave off light. They glowed. They were luminous. And that's why they didn't know that they were naked because they were clothed with something that was glorious. And they lost that. And it's something that God had given to them. And, 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 you know, and we now are his spiritual luminaries to carry on. You remember Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast? He was the candlestick. Jesus described the gathered church on earth as his candlestick. Maybe we should call ourselves Lumiere Chapel. I'm really hurting up here, but anyway. <laughs> For Adam and his wife, uh, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. That's from Genesis 3.21. Where do you get skin for tunics? From animals. Best guess is that the animals slaughtered were sheep. Adam and Eve's son, Abel, offered a sheep in the very next acceptable sacrifice recorded in the Bible. Centuries later, God would specify that his people offer lambs to annually commemorate the Passover. The priests in the wilderness tabernacle and then temple at Jerusalem sacrificed a lamb in the morning and in the evening every day. Around 800 Samaritans live in Israel, mostly in a place called Holon and on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Each year they conduct a traditional Passover sacrifice ceremony in the presence of most members of their community. Two days ago they sacrificed 40 sheep in a ceremony that was attracted uh, tourists from around the world. You need three or four sheep's hides in order to make a jacket. You would need more to make tunics for two people. Six or eight or ten sheep would have been slaughtered. Sean and Lambchop were the first to feel death sting. Adam and Eve would have had a childlike response to the slaughter. Some of you, have you had an experience where your, your kids had their first experience with death, something that they loved died? I can still remember my earliest childhood memories was coming home to our house on 39th Street in San Bernardino, and my dog, uh, Blackie, was dead. And he just died on his own. He was a Cocker Spaniel, uh, tore me up. I'm still sad about it when I think about it. By the way, until I was about... I think I was engaged to be married before I realized that Cocker Spaniels are small dogs. Because he was a huge dog to me when I was three. He used to sit next to me and I'd give him biscuits and I'd eat the biscuit and it was the cutest thing in the world. And then I came home and he was dead. All right. I mean, it's hard, you know. I mean, there's books. You buy books, right, on how to teach your children about death. And, uh, you know, I remember reading one where it was going on and on and on about this pet and then all of a sudden the pet was dead. And I thought, oh, okay, that'll do. Yeah, you know, that's, that's really, that's not going to bother anybody at all. But, uh, 
Blackie died of natural doggy causes on his own. I didn't watch as my dad slit his throat with a knife and bled him out for something I had done. And that's essentially what happened in the garden. I mean, Adam and Eve are like, okay, uh, we're starting to understand this death thing. We feel a little different. It feels like we're wearing out already. And, and we're not quite as sharp as we were. We're afraid of God, you know, but uh, what does it mean to actually die? Well, they, they were going to find out because God slit the throat of those sheep. Even you manly men have cried when putting down a sick, dying family pet. I hope you have, otherwise you're a sociopath. <laughs> this wasn't even that. They were perfectly healthy and innocent when slaughtered in place of Adam and Eve. God slit the throat of those sheep. He had created them. He had given them life. I'd go so far as to say they were dear to God. Why wouldn't they be? And yet they were innocent. I hope animals couldn't talk at that point, right? God, what are you doing? That's more like the fly, I guess, than a sheep. But anyway. <laughs> Remember the fly with Jeff Goldblum? Help, help. Anyway, creepy stuff. My mind was already going long before one day uh, it'll, it'll be over. Anyway, they were innocent. There's something more to consider. God had just told Adam and Eve that someone he called the seed of the woman was going to come to earth and suffer in their place. We know that this person was God's only begotten son, God with us, Jesus Christ. While he slit the throats of those animals, God was looking down the corridors of human history. With perfect foresight, he would see the death of his beloved son on the cross as the ultimate final sacrifice for the sins of the world. God wasn't just killing these few lambs for Adam and Eve. He was revealing all the animals that would take your place temporarily until his beloved son, Jesus, would die on our behalf. And so God... Um, you know, the fact that we have emotion indicates that God has emotion because we are made in the image of God, and we would expect that anyway. Uh, obviously, his emotions are pure, but this must have had a, a, an effect on God. It moved God to have to slaughter these animals on behalf of Adam and Eve, and more so when he understood and, and knew, rather, because it was their plan, that he would do the same to his own son centuries later on the cross. And so this is a very, very deep moment. Sin requires the death penalty. You are born dying, you're spiritually dead, and you will be sentenced to death after the second death. You best have a perfect, unblemished lamb when you approach God. Now let's fast forward to the first century A.D. A bearded, long-haired, locust and honey-eating, wilderness-living Jewish prophet was out in the Judean wilderness claiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The Messiah God promised Israel was on earth. That seed of the woman going all the way back to Genesis. There are a bunch of Old Testament titles for the Messiah. The Anointed One, Savior, Redeemer, the Great High Priest, King of Kings, Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Almighty God, Son of God, Son of Man, Lion, Lord of Lords, Alpha and Omega, Emmanuel, chief cornerstone, ancient of days, and we've barely scratched the surface. John the Baptist ignored all those glorious titles. 
He saw Jesus and led by the Holy Spirit, he shouted something incredible. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lambs God sacrificed to clothe Adam and Eve and all subsequent lambs and all other animals sacrificed were temporary. They were placeholders, seat fillers, as God prepared to send Jesus at just the right time to offer himself in our place. The blood of bulls and goats and sheep could not permanently take away the sin of humans. It's no coincidence that Jesus died dismissing his spirit on the exact day and moment during the festival of uh, Passover when thousands of uh, lamb were being slit, uh, their throats were being slit over in the temple. There is little disagreement among historians that the standard procedure under Roman law in the first century was to crucify a person completely naked. Adam was naked in the garden of God after he sinned. Jesus was naked on the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was a second Adam capable of dying sacrificially to save others. Augustine writes, Jesus Christ took on himself the evil of death itself, wishing to free us from it. It's been said, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe for the debt I could not pay. Jesus was the last lamb, the lamb of God, who died for the sins of the whole world, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so mankind brought death into the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God. And God said, here's what we're going to do about it. I'm going to come. And that gets fleshed out over the course of the Bible history and on into the New Testament. We realize that what he meant was that it was going to be God come in human flesh, fully God and fully human, to take our place and be in our stead, to take our pun his punishment upon us and uh, deal with that punishment, paying our debt. Uh, and giving us eternal life. And, and so God said, now for the time being, I can slaughter these lambs. That way you can have fellowship with me because some, something has to die in order for us to have a relationship. And they can hold your place until Jesus comes. But every Jew, uh, upon hearing, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, should have been mystified. And just uh, the magnificence of that statement in the sense that this is the person that God promised in the Garden of Eden. Now it all makes so perfect sense. And all we need to do is receive this lamb. Because whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let's interact with those words a little bit. This is a silly question, but are you whoever? Right? Kind of a dumb question, but are you, are you whoever? Whosoever? Anyone? Everyone? Are, are you all? Doesn't matter your status or position or wealth or ethnicity. Nothing about you matters. Every human being is a whoever or a whosoever. Whosoever. And this is a whosoever uh, message. Whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus? In terms of what we have been presenting today, I would ask this question. Do you believe Jesus is your lamb? Sacrificed on the cross as your substitute in order that you might be saved and receive everlasting life. By substitute, we mean God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your life so that he could treat you as if you lived his life. Mark Deaver writes, Jesus didn't die on behalf of or for the benefit of 
but he literally died in our stead or our place. We deserve death, but because he died for us, now we will not die. Horatius Bonner answered this way, more lyrical, poetically. He said, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, upon another's life, upon another's death, I stake my eternity. Just as through Adam sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, as through Adam's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through Jesus' death on the cross, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by Adam's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by Jesus' obedience many will be made righteous. Sometimes people object. They said, I don't want to be counted in Adam. I don't know what I would have done in the garden, but I, I don't want to be on the hook for what my parents did, for what Adam and Eve did. And that's, the Bible doesn't teach that that's an option, but I guess you could feel that way. But the other half of that equation is that if we can be blamed for what Adam did, or if we can, you know, inherit his sin, as it were, we can also be set free and redeemed by what Jesus did. And that's the part we want to get to, right? Because uh, if, if you don't have Adam, uh, you say, I don't want to be related to Adam. Well, you're still a sinner. I mean, right now, I, search your heart. Every one of us is uh, sinners. There's something wrong with us, right? There's something wrong with the world. You watch the news, right? I don't know why, but we do. And uh, there's something wrong with the news of, of the world. Uh, you know, the, the, it's not never newsworthy you know, dog bites man. It's always man bites dog. And so there, there, there is good news, but nobody wants to tell you about it. But even if you had a good news station, uh, the, the news coming out of the rest of them is overwhelmingly bad. People are killing each other. People are addicted. They're trafficking each other and all these various things. There is a problem with the human race. And God said, I told you what the problem would be. It would be sin when you ate of the forbidden fruit. It would be death. Death uh, bringing sin and, and such. And so uh, that's what's going on. God said, but I've, I've dealt with that. I can stop that because Jesus is the second Adam. And he took your place on the cross so that you can live forever. Every Bible study ends with two groups of people who have decisions to make. Believer, how are you doing? Are you relying upon the enabling of the indwelling spirit to obey God and live a godly life? You are an overcomer. Are you overcoming? Walking in victory over your flesh, the world, and the devil? You don't become an overcomer as a Christian. You don't get saved and then start learning how to overcome sin. You get saved because God has overcome sin for you, and in your life he's given you the Holy Spirit to walk in his power. Uh, it's not that we will be sinless, obviously, because we still have unredeemed bodies and habitual ha uh, you know, uh, tendencies towards sin. But we don't have to sin. And so how, how are we doing as believers? Uh, are you backslidden this morning? Are you walking with the Lord? Even if you're tight with the Lord or on fire for the Lord, uh, what does the Lord have to say to you? Uh, in terms of not drifting off into the flesh and, and just keeping yourself on the straight and narrow path. How are you doing? Non-believer, you were born dying and dead. The second death is your current eternal destination. All of that changes immediately when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ.
I think everyone knows what it means to believe. You know, there's so many, I read so many definitions and, and arguments about what it means to believe and illustrations and stuff. But this is a spiritual transaction. When we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do so, I hope, so reasonably. I would hope that no matter who's teaching at any Bible-believing church, that you could go back through the message and say, well, that, that makes sense and that makes sense. I might not agree with that, but it makes sense. It's reasonable. There's a reasonable argument or apologetic. Uh, everything kind of flows together. It makes sense. But you don't always save people by making sense. Uh, I didn't get saved because something made sense. I got saved because things didn't make sense. My life was terrible. And a lot of people have that testimony. I mean, you don't have to be a degenerate alcoholic in the gutter being kicked by people who need to get saved. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people think that too. They think, well, you hit rock bottom, so... You know, of course, you're going to reach out to God as a crutch. Uh, that's not it either. People know what it is to believe and to not believe, and, and it's spiritual. And so we pray this morning that, uh, I mean, I really had a sense in the music, right? It was just wonderful today. Not that there was more people or were more joyous on Easter. People always say, oh, why can't it be Easter every Sunday? Well, it is. It's just we celebrate it differently, I guess, when it's not Easter. Uh, it's, you know, every... Everybody wants to put a burden on us, right? And you have a wonderful celebration for Easter and say, well, you know, I wish we could do that every week. Uh, can't we just like what we did this week? There may not be a next week, right? Or the revival could break out. You don't know. Let's just live in the moment a little bit and stuff. But, um, uh, you know, there's a sense of the joy of his salvation. And if you're not a believer here this morning, we just want to talk to you. Uh, we, we've reasoned with you. Uh, you should have a lamb. You know, if, if you were really with it, you would have brought a lamb uh, to take your place because otherwise you can't be in the presence of God. We don't bring lambs because we have the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He comes with us, we come with Him. Uh, and so you need someone to, to be in your place, to take your place on the cross. And when you realize that, then there's only the one person, and it's Jesus Christ.